Good day. I'm Dr. Charles Dedham. I'm chairman of TMIT Global and one of the co-founders of the MedTech Bystander Rescue Care Program. I'll be both a speaker and your moderator today. We're so very blessed you're joining us to learn how to keep your family safe. Jennifer, would you set our sights today? Thank you so much for your kind introduction, Dr. Denham. I'm really excited to be here today and learning more and more about COVID. You guys have been such a lifesaver. I've had friends ask me questions and I've referred them to the modules and to the website. And it's really been great because people just don't know what they need to know about this. Today's program is going to be very, very interesting. We're looking about, we're talking about the future and surviving this, this pandemic that is going to become just something that we're going to have to learn how to live with. And I'm very excited about all of the knowledge and the wisdom that's going to come today from our wonderful speakers. Um, I'll give it back to you, Dr. Denham, and I'll see you all later. Thank you so much. And thank you all for being here. Thank you, Jennifer. And thank you for your steadfast support of patients and families. Um, it's really a terrific opportunity to, to now be able to kind of summarize where we are in this uh, process of uh, the COVID uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, all of us are suffering from COVID fatigue, but we've got some very insightful information that we want to share with you today uh, and also refer you to. We don't have all live speakers today. We're going to refer to some really uh, great work that uh, others have uh, uh, done on our webinar series. Uh, we have Dr. Gregory Boats, who's in the ICU today, uh, however, recorded a prog part our program last night, as we did with Dr. Chris Fox. You see on the second line, the chairman of emergency medicine at the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Uh, Boats is a full professor of anesthesia and critical care at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and also a full professor and adjunct professor at Stanford Medical School. Live, we have uh, one of the real pathfinders in emerging threats and threat safety science, and that's Chief Bill uh, Adcox. Uh, chief Adcox is not only the chief of police at Houston for the text, for the medical center for the University of Texas uh, uh, healthcare programs, but also the chief security officer at MD Anderson, our number one medical center treating cancer in the world. Dr. Christopher Peabody will refer you to who is uh, a wonderful young man in his 30s, uh, who is also an emergency medicine doctor and an innovator. He's the director of the Innovation Center at the University of California, San Francisco. And we've been working with him since he was a third year medical student. And I met him when I was on faculty at Harvard uh, Medical School. We'll also refer you to some of the great work that has been contributed to by Vicki King, who's the assistant uh, police chief with Dr. with Chief Adcox, um, Brittany Bartow, who is a community physician and pediatrician, and uh, Mr. David Bashk, who saved a life um, with our MedTech program, who is a world-class educator and worked together with, with Charlie Denham, uh, who is my son, on a checklist to focus on how families can see can be safer during the COVID crisis. Uh, our purpose, mission, and values are important to us. Uh, our purpose is um, to measure our success by how we protect and enrich the lives of families, patients, and caregivers. This community of practice was uh, founded to uh, tackle the issues of critical essential workers. Our mission is to save lives, save money, and create value in the communities we serve. 
and the ventures we undertake and our core values. We try to live every day. We fall short, I'm sure, in all of them, but uh, we really focus on our I care core values, integrity, compassion, accountability, um, reliability, and entrepreneurship. Uh, we have no nothing to disclose by any of our speakers or the recorded sessions. No funding has been received for this program through the last 24 months from pharmaceutical companies or device companies in healthcare. It has been purely philanthropy. You could go to our website uh, to come back to be able to download uh, information and we'll put information we're referring to and keep updating the website and uh, for this webinar and be able to watch the sessions that we've addressed. Uh, our April 2020, our April 22, um, 2022 progress report video will be out shortly, uh, and it'll address uh, a kind of a recap of where we are in, over the last 24 months. Suffice, suffice to say that we are in COVID fatigue. However, we're really seeing uh, a surge again in Europe, and we hope maybe it'll be a blip here. Maybe it'll be a surge. Uh, maybe it'll be a non-event, or maybe it'll be another crisis if we, uh, with the BA2 virus. We're not going to cover this variant that is part of the Omicron lineage today, but we need to really remember that this is a, a, a critical issue. And uh, what I thought I would do um, is play a video that is what's called Data in Motion by uh, Johns Hopkins. We downloaded it this morning so you can see the latest numbers and we don't have to quote them. So here we go, and we'll play that for you now. So I highly recommend going to not only the Johns Hopkins site, which is really well maintained, uh, see the data in motion, look at the heat maps. Uh, of concern to me is I live in Southern California and you can see that we've really got some intensity there and that just isn't refer uh, referable to our, or reflected of our population. We've really got an issue here. And so my family and I are staying very, very vigilant and we're being very careful. And let's hope that uh, maybe that this is a non-event. We just don't know whether it will be or not with the, with the, the virus. Um, we recommend that you go to our website and we'll continue to update these programs. We record every one, we produce them as a mini documentary, and right now we're contemplating producing a book along with um, Chief Adcox uh, and uh, Dr. Boats. Um, we started an emerging threats community of practice. We're going to be gearing that up uh, with a lot more intensity as we hope that the COVID crisis will dissipate. 
And there are about 30 different things that really should keep, if they're not already keeping our leaders of medical centers up at night, should be keeping them up at night. And pandemics was one of the issues that uh, was critically important. We have wonderful leaders from multiple organizations, and you see a, just a handful of them uh, reflected on the slide before you today. I want to just let you know that some of these threats are invisible until they become visible. Some are invisible threats that we uh, know are going on and, and, and only when something bad happens that we are recognizing them. And it's important that we recognize that. Epidemics and preparation were actually one of the issues that we had identified uh, a year before the COVID crisis. Uh, but there are other issues, employee fraud, patient fraud, that also are critical issues that we're addressing. Just a quick, for those that have not watched our programs before, TMIT is a nonprofit 501c3. Um, we were working in the area of innovation, quality improvement, and in product services and technologies. We were asked to uh, help put together uh, the survey for the LeapFrog group. Uh, and we worked with the group purchasing organizations, which developed our 3,100 hospital network and 3,000 communities. And over 38 years, uh, we've been able to have a wonderful set of subject matter experts now numbering well over 500 that are in clinical, operational, and financial areas. This particular coronavirus community of practice was served originally by about 40 to 50 subject matter experts. It's grown to now well over 100 and we tap a lot of the resources we have, not only the live contributions, but also recorded and enduring content from uh, to our two Discovery Channel films uh, that, were, that were global. And you see a number of the noteworthy names of individuals that were uh, contributors to the programs. And we have uh, three more Discovery Channel or possibly uh, Amazon Media uh, documentaries that will be coming out, one, three minutes and counting. Uh, however, we're addressing a number of other ones. So what happened was we focused originally when this crisis happened on creating family safety plans for critical essential workers. And you see, I won't rattle off the names of the logos that are on the screen before you, but we had wonderful contributors to focus on uh, readiness, response, rescue, recovery, and resilience. Uh, we undertook a 1,000 family household study, and uh, we have well over that uh, amount now in terms of the data that we've been studying critical essential workers, how can we stop the virus in the homes of critical essential workers? We found out that the general public was really interested in this and our focus was on head, heart, hands, voice. What do, what do the families need to know? What needs to motivate their heart or their emotions? What must they do, hands and voice? What could they say to others? As of uh, today, actually, we've done 44 90-minute broadcasts, including those we do in patient safety, 24 specifically in uh, Survive and Thrive training programs, and you see the other list of the deliverables that we've uh, undertaken. We just want to remind you that all of our 90-minute programs have been produced, but we also are producing very short videos you can watch on your phone, and we'll be continually updating them in the, next, in the weeks ahead regarding the next normal, addressing masks, ventilation, and a number of the issues that we still need to really be focused on. Um, this Survive and Guide program uh, covered a number of topics. We started with coming home safely, and you'll see a number of the titles that we have on this page. Uh, the new normal and the four Ps we're going to cover today a little bit with uh, Chief Adcox. Uh, we cover Delta, Omicron, 
I think the most recent videos and the most recent productions have really helpful as we go forward. Testing to navigate care, our stressed emergency safety net, uh, fraud, and then also addressing uh, the safe practices that are critical. So as we go forward, we also wanna thank our college and young adult team who've worked with us on uh, vaccines and a number of areas uh, uh, in vaccine hesitancy. They come from a number of uh, great organizations, a lot of overlap with um, our top medical centers, as you'll see. And they were great contributors, not only to vaccine hesitancy, but also uh, what families can do. And we think of a family being two roommates at college. That's a, that's a living unit and they're the family away from home. And so we had these great contributors. Now, there's been a real challenge with misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. And I found that this graphic was very helpful. I found it on the web. It was absolutely terrific. Misinformation are unintentional mistakes and inaccurate information spreading false information, but it lacks the intent. The intent to harm is really disinformation. We see that coming from the Soviet, the, 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 the Russia, and from those that are trying to defeat science and solid science. And that's fabricated deliberately with the intent to manipulate. And malinformation is the deliberate abuse of fiber, the private information, releasing people's emails and their locations and putting people at risk that, that is an intent to harm, but may not be falsification of information. We produced a videotape called The Vaccination Conversation, which we're updating now. However, we're collaborating with one of my favorite friends, who's Jeremy Kagan, a full professor at uh, the University of Southern California Film School, who has been producing great videos. We mentioned it during our last program. However, we're going to play a video that we think for those of you that are tackling, um, uh, tackling vaccine hesitancy, we're going to play this 10-minute videotape because we do have time today to do it. Competition. I heard you won! Congrats! Yeah. Hey, Charlie. Hey. So you finally got your COVID vaccine shots? Yep. Now I'm all vaxxed up and ready to kick some balls. Hey. <laughs> I know you're happy to be back, Charlie. Watch your language. But, Dad, we are kicking balls today, aren't we? You know what I mean. I know what you're doing. So get out there, do your warm-up. It's Coach on the field. Yes, Coach. You heard him, guys. Let's go kick some balls. <laughs> oh, I am so glad Charlie can finally go back to classes and soccer and anything that gets him out of the house. <laughs> I was going insane with him and his sister and my mom home all day, every day. Oh, it's too bad you can't have a celebratory margarita. Oh, I know, and I want one so bad. <laughs> But why did you wait so long to let him out of the house if the kids don't have to be vaccinated to go back to school? I know, but my mom, you know, with her cancer. 
what does cancer have to do with COVID? They can't get vaccinated? Oh yeah, people with cancer can get the vaccine. Yeah, my mom is vaccinated. It's just that people with immune disorders like cancer are still vulnerable. That's why Charlie, Coach, and I got vaccinated. Not only to protect ourselves, but also my mom. And my little one, Anna. She's still too young to get the vaccine. Hey, Coach, I hope that vaccine gave him super strength and super speed, or else we're looking at another zero on the scoreboard. Don't worry, we'll do just fine. Want to make it interesting? 20 bucks says we lose. Again. Why would you bet against your own team? We're on the same side. So that's a no? You scared? The vaccine make your pee pee soft? <laughs> I'll take that bet, Robert. Huh? You heard me, I'll take the bet. Just so we're clear, you're saying that you want to bet that if we lose, I would win. $20, that is correct. But if they win, you get yourself and Ricky vaccinated. And you'll shut up for the rest of the season. No way, keep your money. I'm not gonna risk my manhood for a couple bucks. You know the vaccine doesn't cause impotence. Oh yeah? What about that guy? What's his name, from McConey? Oh. Oh, he wasn't vaccinated. The erectile dysfunction was a side effect from actually getting COVID. What? Nah. I'm telling you, man, it's true. Side effects from COVID are way worse than the possible side effects from the vaccine. A New England Journal of Medicine study found that the vaccine has no effect on erectile dysfunction. However, a mild COVID infection could, you know. How do you know all this? I did my research, man. I'm all vaxxed up. You know what? It's on. Hey, it's so awesome that you're back. Thanks. Hey, dweeb. I heard you got the vaccine. I bet that's why you're still so scrawny. It looks like you got the reverse Captain America super soldier serum. A super dweeb serum. Hey, I also got the vaccine. Anything you want to say to me? Yeah. The vaccine is an international ploy orchestrated by the powerful elite to keep control over the masses to further their murderous agenda. So shut up and get in line. Where'd you hear all that? On social media. My mom says social media spreads a bunch of lies, misinformation, and I shouldn't believe anything that's not from a reliable source. And do you just do everything your mom says? What even is she, a fascist? What? No, she's a doctor. Do you even know what a fascist is? All I know is the elite are actually lizard people, and the vaccines have microchips in them, activated by 5G networks. He's crazy. Just shoot. Well, my parents are only worried the vaccine was developed too quickly, so that's why I'm not vaccinated. You're not vaccinated? No, he's not. You know, soon they might not allow him to play if he's not vaccinated. Oh no, really? He'd be devastated. I mean, I'm vaccinated and his dad had COVID, so he has immunity. But with the kids, I just feel like the vaccine happened really quickly and I'm still scared. As you should be. We all care about our children's health and what they put in their body. We hear these concerns all the time from parents at the hospital. And I explained to them, the vaccine was not created overnight. The first vaccine ever was created in 1796. That's over 200 years ago. 
thinking that the vaccine was created from scratch in the past year, it's like thinking that the PlayStation 5 was developed from scratch too. But we all know that it started with the Atari in the 70s, then the Nintendo, then the Super Nintendo, then the Sega Genesis, then the Nintendo 64, then the PlayStation. Wait. You're mixing consoles. That's my point. They were all built on previous technology, even if they were different. Just like the different vaccines? Exactly. Moderna, Pfizer, Xbox Series X, PlayStation 5. All brand new, but built on previous technology. And as far as your husband, even if he had COVID, he still needs the vaccine and boosters to help protect him against new variants. Okay, but what about infertility and all those things people talk about? Not only did the vaccine not affect my fertility, but my doctor says that my baby will also be born with some immunity. Right, Doc? That's right. We've had pregnant women who were not vaccinated die from COVID at the hospital. And it's heartbreaking to see families shattered like that over something that could have been so easily prevented. I mean, what people need to understand is that, yes, even with the vaccine, they could get COVID. But what's most important is that it helps prevent it from becoming something more serious. Or even death. Maybe I could come by the clinic this week, just talk to you about it? Of course. Bring your husband and son and I'll answer all the questions you have. And at the end, we can get them their first shot. We have both the adult and kids' doses at the clinic. And maybe a booster for you while we're at it. Okay. I can't believe you're betting against your own son. I'm just being realistic, okay? Admit it. They suck. Oh, oh come on, Rev. What are you doing? Hey, what, what happened? What I missed? Foul. A penalty kick. Wait, 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 wait. Hey, Ricky, you've got this. Hey, Charlie. I'm sorry about everything I said about the super dweeb serum, you know? It's okay, we're on the same team, right? Ricky, 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 Ricky. Are you gonna be a team player and root for your team? Or are you going to root against your own son just so you can win?
So this uh, this video, um, uh, we think did a great job. There are others that we have on our website uh, that are multilingual. And uh, suffice to say, we're not going to cover vaccines today, but we really believe that everybody needs to be up to date and rely on the advice of your uh, of your personal physicians. Last month, we covered what is the state of our safety net, our public safety net. And this really is comprised of law enforcement, our firefighters, our EMS, our emergency departments, but also Good Samaritan care and bystander rescue care, because truly, you will be the first responder to your family. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce uh, Chief uh, Bill Adcox who is uh, the Chief Security Officer and Vice President at MD Anderson Cancer Center. He's the Chief of Police at the University of Texas at Houston Police Department. Um, he has just been a longstanding champion of uh, performance improvement in the emerging threats that we're addressing, much broader than COVID. And our hope is, again, uh, Chief, that we can get back to, and you'll hear from, from Dr. Boats, uh, that we will be really excited about getting back to some of these emerging threats. We covered the issue of the state of our safety net and the fact that we've got major gaps in this safety net uh, last month. And um, uh, we have video actually showing uh, metaphorically how some of the safety net isn't even beneath us and because things have evolved so quickly and that there are major gaps. Uh, Chief, would you go through the concept of how you taught us, our whole team, about left of boom that you derived from the military? Uh, sure, Dr. Denham, and thank you everybody for being here today. Um, left of boom, this is a term that was coined by the, <clears throat> in the United States military while we were battling uh, terrorism uh, on the front lines in, in Iraq. Uh, the, the terrorists had become very well, very, very good at uh, developing IEDs, which are improvised explosive devices and planning them. And our vehicles would drive over them and a large explosion would damage the vehicles. And unfortunately, it was killing a lot of our soldiers or, or permanently injuring them or seriously injuring them. And so the military was able to obtain a, a tremendous amount of funding, billions of dollars in order to harden the vehicles so that they could survive a, an IED attack. And, and that, was, that was okay, but it, they were still occurring. And what they learned pretty fast is they needed to do something to prevent IEDs from being planted to begin with. So they went back to Congress for more money and, and, and the understanding was is they felt like they had already given them money to deal with the problem. So what they explained is they needed to get left of boom, left of the explosion, meaning they needed to go, go upstream and, and try to identify how could they work with the uh, Iraqi community, how could they work with the different organizations to identify uh, the more technically skilled individuals that were building these IEDs and in order to disrupt that and, and so that you wouldn't have them. So again, it was as you look at that graph in front of you, it was how do you get upstream to the left there and stop it? How do you stop it from happening to begin with? So left of boom obviously is before something happens and then right of boom is, is what you would do after uh, an event, a, a terrible event. And so really it came from the United States military. And that was so helpful to us to really be able to uh, communicate the 4P model that we use in all of our projects, uh, which are prevention. And if, and if you could just uh, help us kind of understand a little bit more deeply the two different factors of prevention, that you're preventing two things, preparedness before something happens, protection at, during the event, 
And then performance improvement, which many of our team for many years have been focused on that science of performance improvement, but bring it all together for us. Sure, this is very critical. This is a model that we recommend uh, everyone use. So with prevention, you have two types of prevention, primary prevention and then secondary prevention. Primary prevention occurs when an incident or an event does not happen. You've actually prevented it. Secondary prevention is if an incident or an event, a harmful event does occur, uh, our efforts are focused on reducing the overall harm. So we're able to you know, make sure that in, through partnerships, working with the communities, uh, working with the different uh, parties, uh, that we can, we can reduce the residual uh, outcome uh, or the damages that occur. So, you, so you, your secondary prevention is you have, uh, if you have an event, it's, it's going to be less harmful, less damaging. Um, preparedness is, as you said, Dr. Denner, is our state of readiness. And that's how we ensure that we can effectively respond uh, to harmful or damaging events. So, for example, this is what you do to prepare, such as having in, in, in advance of an event, you, you, you have established early warning systems. Uh, you've trained your, your, your people. You do exercises. You have really solid special, uh, uh, operational plans. Uh, all your planning is done. Etc. So that you're very well prepared uh, in the case that you that you that an event might might take place, uh, so that you can respond to it. Uh, protection. The third the third prong is protection. Uh, for us, it's an agile and adaptive model where we leverage people, processes, and technology to best protect the institutions, the patients, ourselves, and others. And so, really, protection is is pulling all that together and having that model. And last is that loop that we're doing that constant performance performance improvement, looking at it all the time. So if you have a focus on quality assurance and improvement across all service lines, across all events and, 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 and use a data-driven process, you're able to review these events, you're able to take the necessary action to make improvements. Uh, the last thing I will say about the model, the model is not independent. Each of these things do not uh, take place in, in a vacuum. They're all interrelated and interdependent and they feed upon one another. And, it's, and so you really need to have the full model in place and have a, a very solid uh, understanding of how it works. And that is the best way that you're going to be able to, to protect yourself. And that's the best way that you're gonna be able to prevent events for your organization. There's no doubt about it. Well, thank you, Chief. And, and uh, we've applied this to the multiple projects that we undertake. And for those of you that are just uh, 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 getting to know us or working with your families, you can hear we're using a lot of the leading edge innovative ways of dealing with threats. And so this emerging threats in our MedTech program, which was actually uh, focused originally on the eight leading causes of death for what where good Samaritans with no clinical training could take the best medical practices and the best tactical practices from law enforcement from with great leaders like Bill and be able to tackle the first eight to 12 minutes before EMS arrives. Our emerging threats community was started before the COVID crisis. And for more than 30 years, we've been delivering patient safety know-how and knowledge with uh, uh, our community of practice. And our Care University focus is really the education piece. And what Bill just talked about, when we talk about prevention, primary and secondary, we want to prevent people from getting COVID at all but number two is if they do get COVID, that you're preventing long-term harm. 
the, the, the severity of the disease is just directly related to the viral volume or the viral load that people get. Preparedness is like what we'll hear from Dr. Boats here shortly, is this being, being ready, that state of readiness. And uh, then the protection is, uh, what's really important about protection these days is if somebody gets sick in your home, how do you keep someone else from getting sick? Uh, stories, uh, stories sell, data tells. And I have family members that I'm helping manage and advising. I've had family members die of COVID, I have family members and good friends that are suffering from long COVID. I have friends right now that are getting, have been infected multiple times with COVID. And so um, how do you protect the rest of the family at the time when boom occurs or when somebody gets infected? Uh, again, th these are some highlights of some of the content that we've covered. We talked about inside threats and outside threats. And the inside threats to your family are those intrinsic to your family or if you've got somebody in the elderly age group, if you've got somebody who's immune compromised for any sort of disease, trans, post-transplant, post-cancer, currently receiving cancer treatment, uh, having a hyperreaction to viruses. I've got these things in my own nuclear family. I'm over 65. My son has had a, adverse uh, reactions to, to uh, viruses. Um, and uh, I have other family members who are at risk. And so that's where the inside threats, we need to recognize them. And the outside threats are how much community immunity is there, meaning how many people are protected out where you live uh, and are up to date on vaccinations um, and are there well ventilated areas where you can circulate. And the idea of resilience building is really hardening the target. How can we shrink the inside risk and threats how can we shrink the outside risk and threats? That's the game of the next normal. And so as we look at those things and go forward, that's really what's critical for us is, and we see in our hospital system, staffing shortages with COVID have really increased the risk to those from the outside, but also your inside threats because people have not been able to get to see their doctors. So it's really important that we recognize that. So we've asked Dr. Boats now 24 months after uh, the beginning of this community of practice to really address for us the family safety plan and what we call the five R's. And so we're gonna have Dr. Gregory Boats, who is both a professor of anesthesiology and critical care at the UT University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, but he's also an adjunct full professor, clinical professor in the Department of Anesthesiology at Stanford Medical School. I think it's really important for us to recognize he also has done a fellowship, an extra year of training on simulation. He's been a godsend to us as our clinical leader, but also to emphasize deliberate practice of the things that we need to do and the things that we can do. And so when we talk about this family safety plan, I recorded uh, uh, late last night and then edited this morning his latest take on what we, what we need to do. So I'm going to play that video for you now. So Dr. Boats, uh, we've entitled this program, uh, The Next Normal. Uh, and that's, uh, I'm not sure we'll, we'll have, uh, have a normal, but um, uh, as we head forward, what's your general advice to families regarding as we head into this next phase? Well, I think all of us have 
two years worth of fatigue in dealing with COVID and its implications both on our, our work, our home life, and every other aspect uh, that we have had to manage over the last two years. Uh, my advice is to keep up the cause, stay vigilant. Um, we see a bright future ahead, but we aren't sure that we're out of the rough water yet. Um, it looks like the latest variant may be more transmissible, but maybe uh, less likely to cause a hospitalization or even death. That may be tremendously affected by the fact that people have been vaccinated and boosted. But I think stay the course, stay vigilant, stay safe. Great. You know, as we look at masking, uh, you, you know, we've been great proponents of it. We know that care, many caregivers have done great and have not contracted the illness by, by using high quality masks. Uh, it, it's my belief that uh, we really need to be careful as we go forward. And those of us that are immunocompromised or could potentially spread it to someone else or just risk averse uh, should use masks at, at will. What's your take and, and what have we learned about masks? You're absolutely right. I know there's a lot of controversy about wearing masks now that some of the restrictions have been eased. My opinion uh, is that masks are part of that public health strategy that's been in place for two years now to try to protect our populations, especially the vulnerable populations. So I think masking plays a, a big part in how we move forward. Obviously, if you're outside, if there's lots of air moving, then masks play less of a role. But inside, you can't tell where the aerosol might be. And so variants may be moving through our communities, not causing significant illness in most people. But if it gets passed to someone who's immunocompromised or has a lot of chronic health problems, it could be pretty significant in them. Um, obviously, being vaccinated is one of the strongest measures that we can do to try to reduce the impact of the coronavirus, but masking still plays a role. I still wear a mask when I go into public areas where people that I don't know are congregated or if I'm inside. When I'm outside, I don't wear one. I enjoy the outside with the fresh air, but I still wear one when I'm in a situation where I think that the risk is increased. So, you know, we both have talked about this uh, uh, many times about social distance. And now that we know so much more about the aerosol spread and transmissibility of the virus, uh, I tend to look at social distance and ventilation together. So when I'm with my son, we go to a restaurant or we have to go in to order something, we always wear a high quality mask. We try to sit outside. We never sit in, inside at all if we can possibly do it. And we kind of strike the balance of distance and ventilation and closed spaces and public spaces. Uh, is that a reasonable way to kind of think about distance and ventilation? Well, absolutely. I think it comes back to the fact that this is a virus that is transmitted by respiratory droplets that can hang as an aerosol for some time. Anything you can do to reduce the risk of coming in contact with an aerosol is to your benefit. So you're absolutely right. Wearing a mask, staying outside, keeping a distance that may reduce the risk of moving viral particles between people in an aerosol are all good things to do. I think we should still maintain those practices. Fantastic. Testing. 
We now know a lot more about testing, the value of how we might use uh, an at-home test, an antigen test, uh, versus a PCR and a laboratory test, and the timing, which we cover again, we'll cover again in this, in this webinar. Um, this is one of the really valuable things that we can have as we look at the dynamic balance between uh, the background the background immunity or community immunity in an, in, an, in an area and the infection rate. And when we're gathering together, um, do you do you think that it would be valuable for us to all have masks or all have tests on hand so that we can kind of manage that dynamic? Well, I think so. I think that having the ability to do testing at home when you are going to have a family gathering or have a particular activity for which you feel there is risk, then doing an antigen test at home to know what your antigen status is at that time gives you some confidence moving forward. And it also helps you to maybe trace uh, where you may have come in contact with the virus if you do become infected, to try to make sure that those that were there with you get the information that they're at risk as well. And so I think it's, a, again, a valuable part of the overall plan to manage our new normal with COVID being part of the infectious disease risk strategy or, or profile um, in our communities. Well, Dr. Boats, we, uh, we started out with our survey uh, and now have more, uh, many more than 1,000 family responses to our survey addressing the five R's. We're now 24 months uh, into this pandemic. And as you look at advising families of critical essential workers and the general public, let's cover the five R's. And so the first R uh, is readiness. After 24 months, how should a family look at readiness? Well, I would hope that a family would look at readiness the way we did from the very beginning, which is have a plan. Think about what your risks are, especially if you have family members who are in a high-risk population with immunocompromised or chronic medical problems. And use that information to formulate your plan and stay ready. You should constantly think about what are the risks in not only my community, but in the activities that I'm going to do now, especially since things are opening up and we're much more likely to be in contact with a larger groups of people. Um, we need to think about that in trying to maintain the safety of ourselves and our families. The second R is response. We know a lot more about what to do if we have a family member who has a positive test. And many of us are getting notified frequently that our family members, our kids in school are in contact with someone that uh, has, been, uh, has been confirmed to have the disease. Uh, anything new that we should think about as we think about how to respond if a family member A gets sick or B is in contact with someone who has had the virus? Well, I think that not only did we think about readiness, but now we're thinking about how to actually deploy our family safety plan if in fact someone becomes infected. It's the same strategies that we've talked about all along to try to reduce not only the risk to the person who has the coronavirus for their safety, but also the safety of those around them. I think that the strategy is still the same. 
I think having vaccination as part of the readiness plan has perhaps mitigated some of the concern for very severe illness that we might see in someone who comes down with a COVID uh, viral infection. But nonetheless, the rest of those strategies in our family plan still remain true and we should practice them. Our third R is rescue. And we certainly know a lot more about what to do if we have a family member who is sick and needs to go to the emergency department. Uh, you and Dr. Peabody from UCSF, uh, our wonderful teammate, and Dr. Chris Fox from uh, UCI and uh, his colleagues have really helped us understand the factors that are important as we uh, try to rescue someone uh, who might be getting sick. And now we've been around quite a few that have gotten sick and actually needed help getting to the hospital or even have long COVID and might need to go to the hospital. Any tips regarding 24 months after we have uh, started to learn about this virus? Well, I think the concept of rescue is important because we have to have a plan for how to go from home care where we are providing the level of care necessary for someone who's infected with coronavirus, to now seeking healthcare in a hospital or a clinic. And uh, I will tell you perhaps the difference over the last two years is that it's not the chaotic pandemonium that it was before in an emergency room. And the healthcare system is learning how to work in a PPE driven environment much better than we did initially. First, the supplies are better. People are used to using those strategies. And so it's more part of the fabric of how we practice. But it still can be challenging because of you know, the safety measures in place. Access to emergency departments can be limited simply because of those strategies they still have in place. Remember that people are going there also for other routine care, injuries, illnesses, all the reasons that people might go to an emergency room you know, prior to COVID are still in play. Uh, but now we have people who may need rescue because they aren't able to manage their illness at home and they seek additional care or a higher level of care. Um, I think it's still the same challenge. It may not be to the same magnitude, but we have to take that into account when we're making our plan. Our fourth R is recovery. And I don't know about you, but many of us have friends family members, colleagues that are now suffering from long COVID. And I use the term time bomb. This is really, a, this is a time bomb in that uh, it goes off after someone may have been sick. And I've got dear friends who are having a very difficult time getting back to any semblance of normal life. Uh, and it parado paradoxically, uh, you and I've talked about the fact that when we try, they try to exert themselves to get some exercise and get out and mobile, that it just knocks them back. And it's kind of two steps forward, one step back. Um, your advice to folks regarding what we know about long COVID, and I use it as a cautionary tale to say, people may be tired of COVID, but listen, you do not want to get long COVID. This is a terrible, terrible thing that happens to you. Right. When we think about recovery, we're not only considering those people that have perhaps a normal recovery from a viral illness, which is how we hope COVID moves going forward in that it's just one of the other viral syndromes that we have to deal with. And we aren't seeing the very critically ill response that people have and, uh, and certainly at risk for ending up in an ICU with life support and you know, very significant end organ system dysfunction. Uh, 
But you're absolutely right. We need to think about long COVID, which is the circumstance where people who have been infected with COVID have long-standing, uh, prolonged symptoms that can affect many of our organs. Uh, notably, there's a lot of cognitive problems that can go along. We've heard about the brain fog and people who have had long COVID are very limited in their ability to go back to work because they can't multitask. They can't remember things. Um, they're afraid of making mistakes, especially if they're working in a high stakes environment like many of our essential workers are. They can have respiratory problems like um, a prolonged cough or difficulty with breathing or with sputum production and things like that that limit their ability to carry on their activities of daily living. There can be cardiac abnormalities that people see most notably would be just having a very heart, a high heart rate attack of cardia um, for no real reason. You know, they're not exerting themselves very much and suddenly their heart rate's going in the 120 to 140 range. There can be neuromuscular problems that can go on with, with problems with uh, you know, how well uh, you can maintain your balance or how well you can walk and ambulate without putting yourself at risk for falling. All of these things we've seen before in a number of different illnesses, but not so concentrated, I think, in a post-viral syndrome like we're seeing in many, many people. The real challenge is that the healthcare system is learning how to understand and manage log COVID while it's happening. And we're really playing catch up. There are a lot of people that are suffering and we don't have a lot of answers yet because we don't have numbers that tell us whether the interventions that we're considering really make sense. We, haven't, we don't have the power to decide whether it's an effective intervention or not. And so we're learning as we go. Thank you. And the, the fifth R, is resilience. And I like to characterize resilience as a way of living going forward to reduce uh, the potential risk of the threat and use even the military term of target hardening or the law enforcement term of target hardening. And for my family, I look forward and I say, what are the activities that we have over the next month? What's the ventilation of those uh, buildings where there might be something held? Can we pick an outdoor venue? Can we pick an outdoor restaurant? Can we socialize or go to go to church services that are outside and uh, and and really reduce our vulnerability from the outside uh, outside threat? Get everybody in the family vaccine up to date. Uh, fully vaccinated, I think, is a term that's going to go away. I think up to date is perhaps another way we can look at it. And uh, so I, this idea of resilience or hardening the target of your family to these outside threats, as well as the inside threats of vulnerabilities. Well, I think you're right. I think resiliency is really an important dimension of our ongoing response to the COVID pandemic and any other illness or any other chronic medical problem that we face. Uh, I think that uh, the idea of critically evaluating your activities moving forward to understand uh, both the, the risks that it might pose to you and your family and the vulnerability that you might have at that particular time in you or your family is an important consideration. And you also have to think about the dimension of resiliency, which is if something happens, how well do we respond and manage it so that we don't fall apart, so that we don't have a catastrophic event? How do we prepare and behave 
so that when we are faced with that, we follow our plan and we behave in a way that reduces perhaps the impact of that event and keeps us from falling apart. Well, Dr. Boats, you've been such a terrific uh, leader of our clinical uh, work at MedTech, and uh, we had no idea that we'd be focused on COVID over the last 24 months. I just want to take a moment to thank you and get you to comment on uh, our MedTech program, which uh, we actually started in 2015. Uh, I can't believe the pictures of my son when he was a little Cub Scout, and now he's just uh, earned his Eagle Scout project with uh, a rescue station. Uh, Dr. Boats, I just want your thoughts regarding the fact that we just found out that one of our team, this is the fourth time that one of our team just out in their daily lives saved a life. You save lives every day as an acute care doctor. It's your business. But for those of us that don't get to do this and have the honor of serving God by saving other people's lives, it's pretty exciting to see just our core team out in their daily lives and have four lives saved. Your thoughts? Absolutely. That is such great news. When we started this project, our intention was to raise the collective knowledge and skills of bystanders because we knew there was a gap between an event and the arrival of professional first responders to manage that event. And we know there are lots of simple, effective techniques that can be used that save lives. Our mission has been to educate people on those particular interventions and give them the opportunity to practice them so that when they need to use them, they will. And I think we are seeing that it's very effective. We've had a number of people who have stepped up and have helped people in need. That's great. That's a win for all of us. I'm excited to get back to the, the basic tenets of MedTech, which is looking at those things that remain a threat to our young people, both K to 12 students, students in college, and those who are early in the workforce. I'd like to get back to those things that remain preventable causes of death in that population. And although COVID has been an important focus for us over time, we need to get back to the business of educating the public so that they can save lives as bystanders in these events. Well, Dr. Boats, uh uh, it is so exciting here on the West Coast to be uh, seeing our high school students leading the charge at putting rescue stations at beaches, at schools, at parks. Uh, your comments to them, these high school students who have stepped up with it, these are pretty difficult and more complex projects than anybody could imagine to put uh, something in for the general public that would include an automatic defibrillator and stop the bleed kits and PPE for COVID and, uh, and in some cases even rescue gear that, uh, that non-lifeguards can use to save lives. Your message to this group of high school students and donors and actually communities that have stepped up and said, you know what? Um, we're going to do this. Yeah, I think it's really important that these kids keep uh, pushing forward with what they know is the right thing to do. I think one of my favorite sayings as I was growing up was, uh, um, those that say it can't be done are frequently interrupted by those who are actually doing it. <laughs> I think if you don't allow someone to say no, and that be the end of the discussion, but really work to show them why this is so beneficial with relatively cheap equipment 
that can be deployed by nearly anyone with some training that really do have the possibility of saving lives. It's the good cause. We should continue to do that. We know that it is. It's a matter of making others know that this is the right thing to do for that situation in that location at that time. And that's what our high school students are doing. They're taking that charge and moving forward and they're making it happen. And that's really, really exciting. Well, thank you for all you've done. Thank you. So Dr. Boats uh, uh, has been just a fabulous uh, proponent of uh, saving lives, not only with COVID, but as we've said, with uh, the, um, uh, the leading causes of death. Now, let's just talk briefly about a, a, a focus in on emergency care and this issue of uh, transporting a loved one to the emergency department and transporting them home. It's critical with, the, with Omicron that we're as careful as we were uh, with uh, uh, Delta or anything uh, previously. And it's really a, a pleasure of mine uh, to introduce uh, Dr. Chris Fox, uh, Dr. Fox is the professor and chairman of the Emergency Medicine Department at the University of California, Irvine. He is a sailor, he's a surfer, he's a waterman here along the ocean. He's also done a fellowship, one of the first people to do a fellowship in, in the use of ultrasound in the emergency department, which is now very commonly used. And I mentioned my son frequently, but it's kind of uh, interesting to know that uh, my son was on uh, Catalina Island. We were at a scout camp in a remote environment. We had to have Baywatch come and get us because he was very sick. Uh, and we thought it was uh, yeah, it, it, both myself and an emergency medicine doctor at the, at the scout camp thought that he, uh, he had appendicitis. And uh, the small hospital in Catalina on the island, they took care of him because the helicopters couldn't get him in. And it was actually Dr. Fox's innovation in teaching all of the emergency medicine doctors how to use ultrasound to diagnose, uh, diagnose um, uh, appendicitis that actually kept Charlie from having to have uh, uh, more therapy. So uh, that was a, a great experience. So I'm going to, I've asked Dr. Fox from the emergency medicine perspective, but also the general medicine perspective to give his advice to you. Dr. Fox, thank you so much for spending just a few minutes with us regarding uh, this issue of COVID. And we can't believe that it's been 24 months, 24 90-minute programs. We're so grateful for all the advice that you've given us. Um, what do we need to know about this potential, you know, next normal? Yeah, I think um, it's hard to always know what's going on with COVID, but, uh, and my predictions have been wrong here and there. So, but I think we're sort of falling, at least in my mind, I'm, I'm sort of getting used to it being, you know, maybe we're in a lull right now. It's not going to ever really go away, but we're in a lull and let's enjoy this lull as much as we can and kind of get back together with, you know, and, and uh, but, be, but be safe about it and be smart about it. And um, certainly if it starts to surge again, then, um, you know, take all the precautions. Now we know what we're doing. We're good at this. We're not going to freak out about it like we used to. Uh, we know what to do. Vax and chill, and when you um, and then take precautions for yourself. If you know that uh, you know you need to, and, and there's it started to surge up again, or you need to travel or to go to a place where it's uh, surging, then you know exactly what you need to do to protect yourself with the N95s and uh, 
and good hand hygiene and everything else. And so, uh, but, but it's, it's also good to really enjoy the lulls when we have them and kind of get, get some, get some normalcy back. I think we're all sort of experiencing that right now. And that's wonderful. And, um, but yeah, just as long as you're keeping up with the vaccine schedule, I think that's going to be the next thing to track on. Like, when do my numbers come up? Like, okay, I'm over 50. Uh, there's a, there's a fourth dose, AKA second booster coming out. When am I eligible for that? Personally, I would love to get that as soon as I'm eligible for, I think I'm eligible for it now. Um, and, and go for it and stay and just kind of stay up with whatever the recommendations are, but definitely don't freak out about it because we know what to do. We know how to stay safe. So we talk about the five R's and the first R is readiness. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that be ready for the, the, a surge of infections, watch the community immunity, make sure that wherever you're living, cause we have people that are national and international and look at the dynamic balance between infections and community immunity to know what to do. But to a family for readiness, you'd still say have N95s on hand, have everything to take care of somebody at home. And we have to be as vigilant as we were in terms of readiness, even though we don't have a surge now, fair statement. I think that's a very fair statement. Yeah. Don't throw away the masks. Certainly not the N95s. Keep those on hand because we've seen how these surges can just like and tick up like that, kind of sneak up on us. So when that uh, happens again, if that happens again, then we know exactly what we need to. Or somebody travels into your area. Now that travel is becoming so much more complex. I mean, I've been traveling a lot in the last uh, three months, uh, two, two and a half, three months, just uh, all around. And so I feel like I've been able to, um, you know, go into an area like I was in Puerto Rico last week and I'm like, uh, I'm not really sure what's going on here. I'm going to wear my N95 on the plane the whole way there just in case I'm on a plane. Somebody could jump on that plane with me who came from some other area. I think any kind of anytime you're on a plane, at least for me, it's going to be an N95 uh, because, you know, there's there's little pockets surging around the world constantly now. And so I think that's just being safe. And then research the place you're going to. So when you get off the plane, like if the uh, the local area just doesn't have it and they're lulling like we are here right now, then, yeah, you know, um, then you don't really have stress about it as much. And but everybody has a different risk, you know, tolerance here when it comes to that. Some people always wear an N95 no matter what. And other people kind of look at what's going on uh, and base their own risk factors on their own medical history and what they need to do to stay safe. And uh, I like that the idea of kind of knowing what you need to do, vax, chill, wear the mask when you're on a plane and, um, and look at the city you're going to and seeing what the, what the rates are. I think that's kind of being smart about it. So Chris, we, the second R is response. And is it reasonable to say that if somebody gets infected that we have to be just as serious, just as vigilant to keep the other family members from getting infected? And now we have testing so we can do uh, at-home testing. Reasonable to have testing on hand so that we can know somebody's infected and use the antigen test for infection and the PCR test to really confirm things? Yeah, that's exactly how I think about it, Chuck, 100%. You know, it's still... We all know somebody still in our community, you know, pops up here and there still, especially with the travel and people coming home for spring break and just there's, you know, it's a global world we live in now. So I think it's important to always have that testing on hand for, you know, somebody has symptoms of, you know, we know what those symptoms are. And so it'd be nice to kind of, if suddenly you were on the fence about testing somebody, you tested them, it came out positive. Now, you know how to what the response needs to be. Just, we all, uh, you know, fall back into those ways again. 
you know. And then the third R is your area, which is the emergency medicine and rescue. And we've talked uh, in a very detailed way, we won't today, but we talk about the five rights of emergency care and making sure that we really know where to go, uh, that our uh, over 18 year olds have a, a medical power of attorney. We know are in case of emergency and, and we know how to get somebody to the hospital if they're really sick, you're wearing masks and ventilating the car and having uh, charged phones. Any Anything else you would add to the emergency Emergency visit if somebody's got COVID and or maybe COVID and an accident. Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's always hard to know when to go to the ER. I know it is for me. It's hard, it's hard for everybody, but um, certainly, uh, I think you covered most of it, Chuck. There, it's um, it's it, you know you want to use it appropriately, and but you also don't want to delay care. Should you you know have shortness of breath or uh, a, a high heart rate or a low blood pressure, you know, uh, or low oxygen, don't mess around with that stuff. Come right to the ER. Those are all very legitimate reasons to come to the, to the ER heart, heart rate greater than hundred oxygen, less than 90 blood pressure, less than 90. You're definitely coming to the ER for uh, resuscitation at that point. So those are kind of some things to keep on, keep in mind. Uh, and then Chris, the final, the final, the final two R's are really recovery. And you and I have had a conversation offline about, about uh, long COVID. We don't want to get long COVID. This is pretty serious stuff. And this is uh, something to really be careful about. And then, and then the, the, the final R is resilience. How do we harden the target of our home and know that if we were to get a wild variant that, we've, uh, that we're constantly practicing these R's? Reasonable to, is, is, are those reasonable th thoughts and statements? Yeah, yeah, I like I like how you 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 kind of putting that there uh, at the end to stay to stay resilient and just I think for you know me going into this it's just knowing that um, we're in a really good place with it right now but that could change and if it changes you know don't freak out just uh, stay resilient we all know what to do if you think back two years to in the in the beginning of all this it was really scary because we didn't understand this we didn't know if there's a vaccine coming we didn't know. How, why are some people dying? You know, how do we, how do we keep from getting it? Right. I mean, I, I've been around it just as an example of how good N95s are. I was around it for two years, swimming in it, in the ER, uh, you know, at our level one, our county's level one trauma center. And people were coughing all over me constantly with it, intubating, you know, sloshing in it. And I never once tested positive for COVID. The N95 just prevented the whole thing for two years. Fantastic. I'm still, uh, I still haven't gotten it, <laughs> knock on wood. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, because I really want to avoid long COVID, you know, like, I don't know, what if that is a switch for me and changes, you know, my own body's, uh, you know, reaction to it? Like, I don't know what, what could happen. So for me, vaccination and 95 when I need to, and enjoy the lulls. Good. Well, thank you, Chris. You've been just such, such a great contributor to our program, and we just really appreciate it. Good to see you, Chuck. So Dr. Fox has really kind of encapsulated some of the, uh, some of the important uh, issues that we, that we really do need to address. What we wanna do uh, before we go to Chief Adcox and Jennifer uh, and kind of discuss some of the challenges, Chief, that uh, the families of our first responders have is just to remind people that in our prior programs, Dr. Toff Peabody, Christopher Peabody, who's the Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and also the Director of Acute Care 
Healthcare Innovation at UCSF, uh, and Dr. Brittany uh, Bartow-Owens are wonderful contributors to videos that we can't don't have time to show today. And they both reiterate that nothing has changed other than keep up to date with the vaccinations and focus on those five rights of emergency uh, care. So when we look at somebody getting sick, what's really important is that we go to the right provider. Uh, please watch the videos that we've got. We've got two or three, some are long, some are short. The right provider is the one that might have your medical records. And as Dr. Dr. Fox mentioned, um, he's at a level one trauma center. A major medical center is likely to have a, big, a bigger bench strength, uh, faster labs, and a much better way of dealing with uh, somebody with a serious case of COVID. The right diagnosis kind of revolves around having the right information, and that means having a, your set of your medical records. We've also done video clip videos on uh, your medical, the five rights of your medical records, uh, and making sure that you recognize that a copy of your medical records you're entitled to, although a provider owns it, you're legally entitled to them. What's important? Your medications, the history of your imaging. Uh, your history of your laboratory test. You see the icons there in the, uh, on the right side of the, uh, of, the, of the page. The right treatment is making sure that uh, they're addressing not only the signs, but the symptoms that are going on. And Dr. Peabody really wants us to remember that the right discharge is probably the single most important thing that we can do uh, at a visit. And why is that? Because we need to know uh, uh, what our discharge precautions are. What are the precautions necessary to come back? So when you're discharged from, you, you would think it was what they are doing, but these re return precautions that you see in the right in the left lower corner of the, uh, of the slide right now uh, are really, really important. Uh, knowing when to come back if you have a fever, knowing when to seek care for with someone else, knowing all these things are absolutely vital and probably the biggest gap in the safety net of emergency care. And then the right follow-up. What is the right follow-up? The continuity of care. Just because you went to see an emergency medicine doctor doesn't mean that the, the trip through our healthcare system is over. So it's really important that we recognize that when we are working with anybody who's sick and we look at this trip to the medical center, that it is really, really uh, uh, critical that we understand those things and that uh, we're focused on them. Uh, we'll, I'll finish up uh, uh, briefly with something that we use routinely in patient safety and quality, and that is the Swiss cheese model. Uh, any one of these barriers are defenses that we have using masks, avoiding poorly ventilated areas, having social distance, Washing high contact surfaces, we don't hear much about it anymore. Why? Because it's probably not as common as we, as we thought, but there still is an environmental risk. And what's really important about masks is after you're finished with a mask, it is a magnet for the viruses, especially the high quality ones that are N95 or the surgical mask have an electrostatic charge that has attracted the virus. It's attached the virus to the, to the fabric of the mask so you don't breathe it in. But then if you touch that mask, where all that virus is collected, touch your eyes, your nose, we touch our, our faces about 24 times an hour, you can, you can then get the virus. And so it's important to realize that the defenses, the barriers and the safeguards are like a Swiss cheese 
like a Swiss cheese model. And we use, uh, we use this in patient safety to have people help, help them understand that, uh, that the viruses can slip through uh, these, the holes in the, in the Swiss cheese model and, and, and actually come through it. So uh, what I'd like to do now is uh, just ask uh, 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 Jennifer Dingman to comment as an expert in patient safety and quality. And I'll go back to uh, uh, Chief Adcox, and then we'll finish up with uh, a checklist for your families, what's important for your families. But uh, go, uh, go ahead, Jennifer, and then we'll have Chief Adcox. And Chief Adcox, we'd like for you to respond regarding uh, uh, what our families of first responders who are exposed every day. Uh, go ahead, Jennifer. Thank you, Dr. Denham. What a great webinar this was today. All of this really important information and your video was just fantastic. As a soccer mom <laughs> raising my children who have long grown up, I can just see how people are going to relate to that. And I, I strongly encourage everyone here to share that with your colleagues, friends and families and anybody who has questions about getting the vaccine with regard to this pandemic. I think it's really important that we not get too complacent about the um, coronavirus. We really don't know what's coming around the corner. We don't know what these variants are going to do. And we just have to be vigilant and do everything that we possibly can to protect ourselves and those that we love from this virus. Um, these webinars have just been priceless for myself and my colleagues, my family and my friends. And I am so grateful to everyone here who has ever participated, all of our past participants and all of our speakers. You're just wonderful. Um, anyway, I would like very much to um, continue on and share this. And um, I encourage everyone here to do so. And I'll hand it back to you, Dr. Denham. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you for all you do in patient safety, because you also help us uh, tell the stories that, that are important on our other webinar to caregivers and safety and quality. Chief Adcox, um, you are uh, recognized as a leader in threat safety science, and uh, everyone looks up to you in law enforcement. What's your message to law enforcement families and families of those that are, are have EMS professionals and emergency medicine folks and firefighters who are at risk every day and mom or dad come home or sister or brother come home and uh, and they've been on the front line. What's your message to those families and those uh, people that care for us in the safety net? Well, thank you, Dr. Dinner, and surely thank you for those kind words. Um, one of the things that, that I call it the added pressure pot syndrome is that uh, first responders, EMS, uh, emergency department, uh, physicians and staff, et cetera, um, they don't have the, the ability to stay home and, and to protect their loved ones, to be there during certain crises and during certain uh, issues. So they, they have to be prepared. They've got to make sure that their family members are safe and prepared uh, ahead of time because there's a requirement that you know, it's expected that they're going to respond to protect the community. And so it's it's a little it's a little added pressure, and it certainly is a burden on a lot of people. So the only thing you, you really tell them is is be prepared, be vigilant about staying staying current on your on, and being updated on your vaccines. If you're if you're eligible for a booster for you and your family, make sure that that gets done. You know, uh, monitor the current situation in your community, in your area, and you even if you can down in your neighborhood, 
and the events that you're doing. Make sure that you keep your family plan up to date. We've, we've talked about that over and over on these webinars. Uh, there's a great uh, template for that, but make sure your family plans is constantly up to date. Don't, don't over relax. Make sure that you're vigilant based on circumstances. Uh, like Dr. Fox says, particularly when you're flying, make sure you are wearing a, a quality N95 mask. Make sure that you don't get that, that, that viral load in one place and that you are protected. Make sure that you're masking up whenever you're gonna be in circumstances, perhaps large crowds over a period of time um, inside, of a, inside of a structure where there isn't good air circulation. Just be really vigilant about it. Do everything that you possibly can. And again, just really understanding what's, what's happening around you and, and making sure that your fear level and your actions are based on facts, not information, not disinformation, uh, not on what somebody says on social media. Utilize the scientific data, utilize the information that's contained in these 24 months uh, worth of webinars that are factual, uh, documented, uh, sourced information. And, and, and lastly, I would just say, just like anything, if you have any questions, contact the experts and, and, and rely on the experts. And then virtually most of your, your quality hospitals will have lots of experts on the virus. And, and that's really, really what needs to be done. Uh, but I do, uh, in joining with Jennifer, I do wanna thank you, Dr. Dan, and TMIT and others for 24 months of bringing this information together, having it online. This free information for everybody is critical. And well, thank, thank you, Chief. You and others have provided is, is unbelievable. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chief. And Chief, uh, you know, the last video we did, we addressed the state of our safety net, and not everybody got to see it because many people are not watching live. They're so busy these days and trying to get back to work. Can you give us a, just a picture of your take of where we are in our public safety net, this kind of the graphic that I have before us? of uh, our law enforcement, uh, firefighters, uh, uh, our EMS, uh, emergency departments, that our public safety net is as frayed and has got a big, as big a holes in it as our public safety net, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there, there are a plethora of reasons and stressors and causes for the problems that we're having throughout the safety net. And there are a tremendous amount of weak portions and even holes in the safety net throughout the entire public safety net. Uh, whether it's the fact that people are, are leaving the profession in droves, uh, this, the stress that's on, the decisions that they're capable of making at any given time. Um, there's, there's actually you know, shortages in certain supplies in certain places. I know that in, just in the law enforcement piece, uh, we've had a, an inordinate amount of retirements, the, the employment, uh, group, the, a number of people that are available to become police officers, as well as uh, nurses and others. The, the, the pool, if you will, the labor pool is just very, very small. I'll give you an example. Chicago Police Department used to have, you know, average of 16 to 22,000 applicants each year. This past year, they had 3,800. I mean, if the drop in the amount of available people is, is significant. Uh, so you're, you're seeing, and then, of course, with all the issues going on with COVID and other reasons, there's a pullback. And so now what you're seeing is a lot more violence, a lot more angry assaults, murders in communities. Uh, you're seeing uh, traffic accidents and road rage are at all time high. More people dying in traffic accidents today than we've had in, in, in many, many years. 
So yes, all these things will have an impact on that safety net. And, and if you can't if you can't make sure that our our, our our first responder emergency safety net is intact, then everyone in every community suffers. And it, and it could be catastrophic if it's you and your family. So I would say that we all have to pay attention to that. Fantastic. And uh, in the final five or six minutes, I just want to uh, draw people's attention to the fact that you can go and watch the videos that you see here. Um, and, uh, and what I'd like to do is have both you and Jennifer, who have both been on every one of them, uh, add anything you think that may have been of value. At first, we, we, we tried to help the, the, the essential workers understand how to come home safely. And then everyone was concerned about their families and keeping our kids safe. Um, in this one, we look at the, the risk profile of your family. Who's living there? Who's at risk with, uh, with reference to age? Uh, on the low end of children, but on the high end of adults and also immunocompromised. The 5R plan we put together very early in the program, and then we developed templates. We're updating them for 2020, uh, uh, for uh, 2022. Uh, providing care at home, we developed a methodology and checklist for you to set up your own care room uh, to keep from getting someone else sick. And I right now am helping manage uh, no less than five people that have somebody sick at home right now, and you do not want to get long COVID. Then we updated the safety plan. We addressed the, this issue we did today of emergency medicine, but a deep dive. And I highly recommend everybody watch that because it is any emergency, the five rights of emergency care really apply. A lot of people want to know, well, what do they do? Uh, it, what do you do if your family is in the ICU? I have a cousin um, who's a newborn cousin who needs a liver transplant. And because of the rules of the, uh, and, and coronavirus, but also the, the risk for the, P, uh, for the pediatric ICU, uh, there's a limit other than parents just being able to see this little girl who's waiting for, for, for a liver. Uh, the vaccines, variants, and victory, a lot of the principles still apply, even with an Omicron 2, the BA2. Um, long haulers is really a big deal. There are more and more people. Um, we'll cover in our next webinar, what do I do if I get long haul disease? We highly recommend going to a long haul clinic. This has helped people that I've been helping who are older people that have got long haul, but there are younger people getting it too. The best practices for reopening, we're going to revisit. And then, and then uh, uh, Chief Adcox addressed uh, the, the, the four Ps. As we look at some of the others that might be more important for those of you, uh, take a look at special care for special populations. Also, safer holidays as we start to go travel and kids are getting out of school, really, really key. I think one we spent a tremendous amount of time on that is really a polished, uh, pretty polished documentary is a deep dive on testing that hasn't changed. So you can kind of take that to the bank. Uh, Chief uh, Adcox and our other public sa safety leaders helped us last uh, in the last one. We are going to cover co the fraud in the ecosystem, and we are going to cover the safe practices update, our thousand household study, and our faith-based uh, and what faith-based organizations can do. We're putting rescue stations at faith-based organizations right now. Um, 
Chief Adcox, uh, I'll go to you first and then I'll go to Jennifer. Uh, were there any of these webinars that you found particularly important for those you lead in, um, in uh, the area of law enforcement and also as a threat safety science leader, anything you wanna draw our, our attention to over the last 24 programs? Well, there are, there are many, but I, I would say that the, one, the ones that were really helpful with my staff was to be able to explain you know, how they could safely go to their homes and, and, and go from a hot zone to, to the warm zone and then back into the cold zone in their homes, how to do that uh, so that they would protect their family members, as well as the, the, the ones that talked about the, the science, the testing, um, the variants, uh, you know, what, what was the real risk, having factual information. And I think the last thing was is that I'll, many of these talk about how we need to individually and collectively communicate uh, what, what, what is the truth and what really needs to be done and what we can do uh, so that folks throughout every, every community and every family can protect themselves. So th those are the ones that I would say are the, are the most. And then again, you know, even the thousand household study that, that, that you compiled uh, brought, about, brought some true value to uh, the largest study I've ever heard of in, in this in this arena uh, to what people should really be looking at. So with that, you know, I think that, you know, there's bits and pieces on all of these, and I highly recommend that people avail themselves to them. Thank you, Chief. Uh, Jenny, we'll go to you for the last word. Uh, to oh, uh, You know, I have just a couple minutes. What I'm going to do is just address uh, the family checklist, which I thought if I have time to address, which I do have a couple minutes to do, and we'll finish right on time. Um, uh, David Beshk is an award-winning educator. My son is a high school student uh, at, at the same school. And David Beshk uh, uh, and my, my son on the right was a Cub Scout, a fifth grader who's now in 11th grade. We've been working on MedTAC for that long. Uh, developed a family lifeguard checklist. What to do before a family event, during an event and after event. Take a look at the slides. One of the things that you can do is, is uh, how to determine how to protect at-risk members. We don't want to be, we don't want to irritate or offend anybody, but if you can find out the vaccination status, are they up to date on vaccines and whether they've had testing and whether they're traveling, you heard that from, from, uh, from Dr. Fox. This can really help you have a safe event and then make sure ventilation, uh, cleanliness regarding contact surfaces, and, and what to do afterwards can really reduce things. If we use the lifeguard, um, my son had heart disease. He had two heart surgeries. So he and my wife and I both got certified as VSA lifeguards. My son and I are both rescue divers with uh, uh, Patty rescue divers. We know that lifeguards, 90% is prevention, 10% is rescue. And so as we look at these safe practices, it's really, really uh, critical that we uh, that we really know uh, that we are uh, that we really want to be a lifeguard. We don't want to be an emergency caregiver. We want to be a lifeguard and prevent anything bad from happening. So uh, what I'd like to do now is is have uh, uh, Jenny uh, give us the last word. And uh, Jenny, I'm going to put your lovely uh, uh, image up and share that uh, uh, share that and ask uh, that. Uh, um, that, that you close us. Thank you, Dr. Denham. I, I just, um, you know, <laughs> these webinars have been priceless, like I said earlier, 
going all the way back to March 18th of 2020 for the very, very first coronavirus webinar you did. It was about protecting you and your family, first responder and family briefing. Through this, we learned about, we taught the public and providers about the chief family officer, the one person in the family that you taught how to take care of quarantining a family member, taking care of a family member. When it was appropriate to wipe things down, you gave really good advice about that. All through these webinars, it was always about patients and families. I, in looking at it, I, I just strongly encourage everyone here to watch each one of the videos of each one one of these, share them with people that you love and people that you work with. It, it, we have learned so much and there's yet so much more to learn. And I never close doors because we just don't know what's happening. But I can't urge you enough. Don't get complacent. Don't get too comfortable because we're living in the 21st century and things are so different. And the new normal may very well be variants of this virus for the next 50 years or more. And this is just something that we need to learn how to live with, get used to, and most of all, respect others, respect those that are vulnerable, get a vaccine, encourage others to get a vaccine, to protect someone who might not be able to be protected from their own vaccine, someone who is very ill. Think about that. Think about what God wants us to do, um, how, how God said to love your neighbor as yourself. And and I think these webinars have more than, than shown what true faith, true Christianity is about. And I just cannot thank Dr. Denham and Chief Adcox, Dr. Boats, and everyone else who has been here and given their time and energy and expertise to these great webinars. Um, we'll see you all again. God bless you all. And again, please share this widely. Just let it become viral, get it out there because it's one of the greatest things that has been given to the American public since this pandemic has begun. Thank you again. Well, thank you, Jenny. And you've been just said so great. And uh, what we wanna do is uh, just let you know that there are all kinds of resources that we have uh, at the end of uh, uh, the program. And thank you, Jenny, for the, the kind words. Uh, what we like to say is, is that we fight the good fight. Uh, we uh, will finish the race and we'll keep the faith. And uh, that's what we're doing. And we'll see you next month. We're going to address the key sto critical stories in performance improvement. What can we learn about long COVID from those that have cared for it and gotten it? What can we do about emergency and all of these things? And we're going to be using story power uh, next month. Thank you all. And we'll see you next month.